0: Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's art director. As we gear up for Talking Writing's donation season, we decided to put together an episode that highlights issues surrounding the financial sustainability of making art and the importance of creating, even when the rewards are low. That art is underfunded is nothing new. Even in the face of that battle though, people all over the world continue to create art that provides personal meaning And if some of that meaning can translate to another person, then that can be enough incentive to keep doing it. But it goes without saying that money would also be a really helpful tool for surviving while trying to bring that art into the world. The two main segments in this episode are an interview by managing editor Neva Taliyadon with Rachel Canberry, an associate editor at HarperCollins, who's currently on strike, and a reading of the essay On Writing Another Novel by Rebecca Steinitz. Rachel and Neva's interview deals most closely with funding issues, although we plan to release a fuller version of this interview, which will include Rachel's personal story of starting out in publishing, and more specific details of the conditions involved in the Harper strike. On Writing Another Novel details Rebecca's experience completing a first novel, only to have it rejected. This essay was recently published in Talking Writing. An early unfinished novel by the author was originally inspired by NaNoWriMo, a non-profit that challenges participants to write 50,000 words of a novel during the month of November. In this spirit, the music from this episode comes from The Sound of Thinking, my 2022 RPM Challenge submission. Similar to NaNoWriMo, the RPM Challenge invites musicians to make an EP or an album during the month of February. This album was made with instruments that I built using only speech disfluencies such as uh, um, and you know, taken from my weird music interviews. Before we get into the two main segments, here's publisher Martha Nichols with a call for donations.
1: I'm Martha Nichols, the publisher and co-founder of Talking Writing. First of all, I'm here today to give thanks to you, to all the wonderful writers and artists and subscribers and everyone listening to this podcast episode. We couldn't continue to produce Talking Writing without such support. And as you may have guessed, I'm also asking for your support now. Please donate what you can to our annual fundraising campaign. Talking Writing is a 501c3 nonprofit charity based in the Boston area. And every year in the fall, we ask for donations in order to fund our publication schedule for the coming year. Donations are tax deductible in the U.S., and you can easily make them online via the PayPal Giving Fund. In 2023, much of our publishing schedule will be devoted to new episodes of this podcast. We already have a variety of writers and other creative people scheduled for feature interviews early next year, and we'll continue to combine poetry and music and other readings to spark and delight you. I hope you can hear the excitement in my voice as I talk about the podcast, because it's a project we've wanted to launch for a long time, and we're finally doing it. In just the past few months, it's blossomed. It's become a terrific venue for what I've always thought of as the TW mission. Supporting creative people who continue to do the work because it sustains them, brings them joy, helps them weather difficult times and a divided world. So from now to December 31st, we ask you to donate to Talking Writing for our annual fund. You can do so through the donate page on TW's website and links with this podcast. If you're a TW subscriber, you can donate through the buttons in our regular newsletter. And many of you may want to donate to Talking Writing on Giving Tuesday, November 29th this year, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving in the United States. Giving Tuesday celebrates the work of nonprofit organizations and charities around the world. I will admit here that it's hard to ask for money. I know how tough it is to make ends meet, especially if you're a writer or artist or musician struggling to break through in a very crowded digital landscape. But I also know that Talking Writing has been supporting writers and artists since 2010. And I know what a difference individual donations make to our bottom line. They really do allow us to keep publishing creative work, and they're a show of support for our work.
0: And now, Neva's interview with Rachel Canberry, an associate editor at HarperCollins. The HarperCollins strike has been going on since November 10th, 2022, and at the time of this recording has not been resolved. The three main conditions are to establish a salary floor of $50,000. Average cost of living for a single person in the New York metro area requires roughly a $78,000 salary according to the Economic Policy Institute to establish stronger union protections, and to codify language around diversity, equity, and inclusion in order to hold HarperCollins accountable to the principles of hiring from diverse backgrounds.
2: My favorite refrain uh, in publishing, or one of them anyways, is, well, you know, we don't work in publishing to get rich. And you go, you know, that is rich, pun intended, coming from someone who makes five hundred thousand dollars a year eight hundred thousand a million
3: like after, by the way after recording billions of dollars in profits that part by the way that part you no know, they, they're, not, they're they're not making they're not there to make money exactly they, you know, they
2: recorded profit record right. profits. you know you'd think for publish you know you'd think publishing people would be able to grasp irony when they when it's like (laughs) coming out of their mouths and yet they're you know you just sit there across from them and they just look at you like that makes sense right and you're going no it doesn't you know I once asked uh a higher up after I had gotten a raise you know from thirty three thousand dollars to thirty five five hundred I think it was oh god forbid I know I was like you did a great job here's your raise and I'm like and i literally and i literally with like tears in my eyes you yeah. know, and at this point i'm i'm older than the average editorial assistant i'm like uh-huh. 26 or so mm-hmm. but i'm still sitting there with tears in my eyes going how do they rationalize this how do they think that this is okay and this person proceeded to essentially explain trickle down economics to me which you know, has been like,
3: disproven so many times
2: exactly like we have if, if, if there's nothing else we have determined as a country it's that Reaganomics was bunk yeah. and i'm sitting there and i'm going i'm not like i was like i know how trickle down economics works in that it doesn't but i what i'm asking is how do they think that this is okay how do they sleep at yeah. night knowing that i am making poverty wages doing the work of uh, doing white collar labor That requires a requires a college education at minimum, and Mm. I didn't come from you know I didn't go to an Ivy League or I didn't go to like a big name school, but I still went to a private university by the grace of a great financial aid package, and a settle you know a wrongful death settlement on my mother you know on my mother's part that helped pay for it. and you know that money ran out real quick because guess what we live in new york city yeah uh, exactly and, and so yeah it's just there's a lot of you you just encounter so much of this mentality of again it's it all comes down to i suffered therefore so much you slash and it's not just that but also there are so many people at the top of this business of this industry who do not know what it is like to to be hungry, to wonder where your next meal is going to come from. If you are going to be able to keep a roof over your head, they Mm -hmm. have either not had to to deal with that issue Mm -hmm. in 20, 30 years, or they never had to. And so Mm -hmm. when you come to them saying, and and you look like them, especially Mm -hmm. someone like me walking into a room, looking like them, sounding like them, being able to kind of speak their language and then turning around and saying like, by the way, everything you're doing is unacceptable and unfair and will destroy your industry in the long run. They just kind of look at you going, that's not true. Like how, like, that's not, no, this is just how it's always been. And it's, we're still here, aren't we? It's like, yeah, but look around you and look at the state of your industry and tell me Mm -hmm. something isn't deadly wrong with the way that you run things.
3: Uh, Well, a lot of it is like willful ignorance and Mm -hmm. also because, you know, it's been, as we said, it's been institutionalized that workers abdicate their power, everything from negotiating power to just demanding what's right, you know, Mm -hmm. so they've gotten used to that and they run on that.
2: And I want to, and I want to stress too, it's not, you know, the reason we're on strike isn't just because they won't agree to the financial demand that we're making you know, the, the DEI language, you know, the codified language in the contract, they've pushed against that too, basically Mm -hmm. saying like, you know, well, we already do that again, like kind of paying, paying lip service, but not actually ever committing Mm
0: -hmm. to this
2: work, you know, because, and I'm, and I was thinking about it sort of in the lead up to our conversation of like, I wonder what Neva thinks about this because, you know, and talking to coworkers on the picket line and things like that. It's like, what, you know, from your perspective, it's like, what do you imagine goes through their minds when they see that kind of demand, right? In terms of like, because from my perspective, it's obvious one, and I can kind of imagine that in their minds, it's like, well, we can't, can't really have diverse hires because those people are going to actually question us and demand, you know, make demands of us and like try to change things and the status quo works for us yeah exactly it's just like but the status quo feels good so like why would we change that we're just gonna say we will and then don't and won't right and it's just like that's not that's not it Also,
3: yeah it's also because i've worked with vcs before Mm. in my you know previous um life as a as an entrepreneur and and This is what they have. They're beholden to these investors, yeah. And what these investors are thinking about is that if you are going to put your money where your mouth is, that is a uh, another resource Mm. that they need to divert, and it's Uh. not going to go to the shareholders. It's not going to go to bonuses, um, which is in itself wrong. But I'm just saying that is how the VC and investors ecosystem operates. This is so It's a important. game.
2: Yes, it is. And it's it's monopoly yeah. money to them. And yeah, it's so it's exactly and that. And I'm so I'm so happy that you pointed that out because I think it that absolutely further's right our mission to demystify this industry. Yeah. Because as this industry continues to be condensed, you know, and you know, com- uh yeah, condensed to fewer and fewer houses, yeah. and fewer and fewer, you know, imprints and things like that. One
3: was uh, just closely
2: prevented, Thanks, right? right? Thank goodness. But also, what's going to come of Simon and Schuster, right? Is it exactly. also going to be get bought up by venture fund capitalists mm-hmm. who care more about you know the shares than about the books? Yeah. The more that that happens, the more we're going to have those C-suite folks wondering about their, you know, wondering about their bonus and not caring a jot about my, you know, my parent dying or yes. someone else's parent dying or being on un- Something unhoused. practical. Exactly. Right. Just because it doesn't cross their mind because why should yes. it? So yeah. that that is such a huge part of this in terms of the providing transparency into this industry for for prospective authors for current authors for current employees for anybody who cares about you know fair and equal work and compensation and labor rights and all of these things and and honestly things like yeah you know the black lives matter movement and feminism and all of these big 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 issues these macro issues You know, I've been told, don't worry about the macro, you know, the macro is just it's out there. Don't worry about it. The headlines are written designed the the way headlines are written. They're designed to stress you out. Just put it out of mind. It's like I literally cannot afford to do that.
3: We can't because we live where those issues live. Exactly. The, The issues happen are affecting us every day. And for for me, like when I look up about like the strike, and not just the strike, and we were talking about this earlier, this is not like an anomaly that just happened. Mm -hmm. Like for the past few years, there's the hashtag publishing so white, the hashtag publishing paid me right. These Mm -hmm. movements that have come out because enough is enough. It's these, you know, it's it doesn't pay to rock the boat. No, and so as much as possible, nobody wants to rock the boat. But I feel like with with pub- the publishing industry and even art in general being swallowed by monopoly money people, yeah. like people who just want to play monopoly, um, it's a fight not just for workers' rights and um, social justice, but it's a fight for humanity. Yeah, because when you think about when you reduce about when you reduce an industry to monopoly money
2: yeah.
3: and the people don't matter, then you are rejecting your humanity. You, you are just looking at numbers and you, you're not looking at how this came about in the first place. There is a human need that gave rise to these industries. And you know I think the biggest mistake too of the monopoly money people is that they're forgetting that you can't take out the humanity because that is what is giving them their monopoly money in the first place.
2: Precisely. So
3: so Precisely. It, de- it really needs to be a balance. And so I want to, like us in Talking Writing and so many other people want to know like how we can support this tribe. Yes.
2: So there are a number of ways to, you know, provide support either, you know, tangibly or, or not. Anything is welcome, truly. But the biggest things are things like donating to the strike fund. Mm-hmm. We are all of us, the entire union, and that's about 250 of us it, from the New York office. The New York. I wanna mention the New York Times wrote about the strike uh, last Thursday. They mentioned that this is 250 employees out of 4,000 global employees. So it's really just like a small fraction of employees. It's like, no, this is half of the New York office. You know, we are, and we're the only ones with the union. This is not a a, you know global union. This is just the New York office. This is for New York. Yeah, yeah, this is half of the office is out on the street right now picketing, and killing it, and they're absolutely amazing. And I love them. To God, I love them all. Um, But so that, but we are all for going pay. Our paychecks coming tomorrow only cover those three days before the strike started last Thursday. So we're all only getting about maybe two to $300 for a paycheck tomorrow, you know, all of us, um, if we're lucky, you know, and, yeah. uh, so everything that's going to get us through this strike financially. So paying rent, paying for groceries, yeah. going home for Thanksgiving, things like that, mm-hmm. that is all going to c- come from you, the supporters. The it's donations. going to come yeah. exactly from the strike fund, Uh, Thankfully, the UAW being such a large union also has a strike fund that we were able to apply to. Uh, There's unemployment if it comes to that, which hopefully it does not. Mm -hmm. But that that all goes to say, we are like, we are doing this literally for free. We're doing this in lieu of pay. We are on the street freezing it's so cold outside Mm -hmm, already mm -hmm. uh although finally because it's been a minute uh before since new york was cold uh (laughs) it was a strange it was a very strange uh early november weather-wise yeah it's really cold we're literally walking around out there with like h&m gloves on and like cheap like (laughs) cheap like kid gloves and hand warmers like stuffed, like twos and threes you know in each hand kind of thing so that that sort of thing really helps Joining us on the picket line, you're more than welcome. We are out there every morning, Monday through Friday, uh, from eight thirty to five thirty. Fridays from eight thirty to one thirty. We decided to give ourselves summer Fridays for the Thanksgiving. Uh, exactly, and and yes, next next week we will be out there Monday, Tuesday, and I believe a uh, half day Wednesday. So 830 okay. to 130, but you are more than welcome. People are more than welcome to join us on the picket line outside 195 Broadway over on the entrance uh, on day street is where we mm-hmm. pick it.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: you can amplify, you can just amplify our message by whatever means you see fit uh, and whatever you're comfortable with. So I had, you know, I've been just putting out tweet after tweet. That's sort of my, that's sort of my go-to. Yes. Uh, but share, you know, share the H, you know, Harper union has a fantastic Instagram and Twitter presence. You can retweet and repost stuff from there. Um, I, for example, before, right before the strike started, I sent out a letter to friends and family who, one of, a, one of whom reached out to me just last night and said, I forwarded your, your letter to over 300 women writers in the San Francisco Bay area. I was yeah. like, it's that's like, amazing. that yeah. is like the that that warmed my heart I think for 50 lifetimes I think (laughs) that is that was huge you know Mm -hmm. and that was also from someone who is a published author right like emphasizing that you know authors have so much at stake in this strike just as much as we do because that's right not only do we not want to be on strike we would much rather be doing our jobs we just want to be fairly compensated for them um it's not just that we don't want to be on strike it's that none of us want to leave publishing no one I know who has left publishing since in the last six years since I started has left kind of out of their own free will you know they've made the choice to leave but all of them are like I don't want to leave like I love this work and I love my authors I just can't do it under these conditions yeah and when those editors especially when those editors leave and this this is true across every department in publishing no matter the house but when, th- when those people leave, they are not only taking, uh, you know, industry knowledge with them or in-house knowledge with them, systems knowledge, things like that. But authors get left behind, you That's know, and same. authors feel abandoned and authors suffer and authors suffer. And if the entire, you know, the core tenet of publishing, especially right now, is author care. You hear that. That is the phrase you will hear at every you know, Mm -hmm. mid-year meeting, all this, you know, every Mm -hmm. big memo sent out by the CEO, author care, author care, author care. I cannot think of anything more antithetical to author care than not paying your employees a livable salary so that they can stay, do the work and publish those books and work with those authors, hopefully for more than one book, right? In order to maintain diverse lists and in order to maintain imprints that aren't just a bunch of white people publishing the same stuff over and over yeah. again you know maybe one day my hope is that one day we'll be able to break away from the comp system and instead of having to rely oh my on gosh. other yes. books that are kind of similar that did That's well right. and can set a precedent it's instead kind of what publishing used to be which is that hey this is a great idea or hey this writer is incredible who cares how many Twitter, like, fo- tre- Twitter yeah. followers they have exactly cares, like,
3: like- or like treat it as a a, a separate book because yes. it can only come from that writer or you know like it, it, you, it can't be a clone of that other book anyway. There yes. are no if there are no guarantees anyway. Why use a broken system? It's just Precisely. it's a made up thing so yep. that they they can leverage negotiation.
2: Yes, like we were they saying before, we are excuse. we are exactly. We are playing with monopoly money here, so yes. we might as well. We might as well play with people <laughs> who are like great storytellers and good yes. writers. They should have that they should have that opportunity. And not be beholden to the shareholders. They should be beholden to one group of people, and that is their publishing team. And that publishing exactly. team should be able to stay throughout the entire course of an author's publication experience. Yeah. I know authors personally who have gone through, we call it being orphaned uh, in mm. industry speak, but they have lost upwards of three to four editors on one. Oh, book. my goodness. That is wow. I cannot think of anything wow. in terms of like professional, in terms of like the writer's experience. Yes. I imagine like it's I a horrible myself,
3: experience.
2: It, 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 I don't even have words for it. I just imagine yeah. if I putting myself in their shoes, if like if I were that writer, I would have no faith in this industry whatsoever. And yeah. this person was like, Yeah, I'm really struggling with ever wanting to publish again. I'm like, I get it. I, I, and I have adopted those authors too. I have come in after another editor has left and sort of picked up, picked up this author who is so despondent and who's so like, what do I, you know, what what do I do now? And I say, I, and I have to encourage them and I have to make that commitment to say like, I will still be here in a year. What this strike represents is an entire group of young publishing professionals who want to be here, who want to be working and who want to stay working in this industry is a breaking of a cycle that has persisted for decades. Mm -hmm. And just like so many, you know, other millennials and Gen Z around the world who are looking at their parents and looking at their grandparents and the way that they live and the the this you know the minds in which they live and suffer are looking at them going, I don't want that for myself. I would much rather go through the hard, really hard work of breaking cycles than perpetuate any of that. Well, yeah, because there's already proof of concept that those cycles
3: never work.
0: They never do. So,
3: Just like trickle-down economics, it doesn't work. And what is the use of having the privilege, the education, the opportunity if you're not going to change it?
2: I think there is just such an incredible opportunity here for people both inside publishing, without, you know, outside publishing, authors, agents, you know, everyone even and just readers period because our business does not function without readers it doesn't function of without course. authors and it doesn't function without readers and if readers collectively said hey we want to read books that are produced by people who are paid well so that people can f- can live their lives bring their insights bring all of their insights and their experiences and their knowledge and their culture and religion and everything, everything about themselves to bear on this work, because I cannot think, and this is one of the reasons why I've stayed in publishing as long as I have, despite everything that I've been through, is that I know how much of ourselves goes into every single book that gets published. And I know how much of an author goes into every single one of their books. Exactly. And there's nothing to me, there's there's no more beautiful alchemy than that. And I want to see more of it and I want to see it reflect the world that we actually live in. And I Mm -hmm. want this industry to reflect that too. And I think, and I hope that that will happen. And because I, you know, I know I'm committed to making it so.
1: Call talking writing the little engine that could. We've always believed in amplifying small voices, small in the sense that such voices aren't getting the public recognition or influence they deserve. We publish writers and artists who express their personal views, insights, and reflections about the world through their work. These personal pieces add up in a digital space in which people find stories and art that resonate in a deeply meaningful way. For that reason, we've begun to call ourselves Creative Lifers, the title of this year's issue in the magazine. We honor all the other Creative Lifers out there, be they writing yet another novel this November for NaNoWriMo, or digging deep to create essays and poetry that may never find an audience, or making music that may be heard by only a few dedicated listeners. At Talking Writing, we keep stoking that creative engine, doing what we can to talk about the value of literature and visual art and music in ways that rarely find a home in the rest of media. We have always been about supporting the creative life, whatever the challenges. I won't mince words about how difficult the pandemic was for us to get through and for everybody around. Talking Writing, like many arts organizations, struggled during that time period. If you're a longtime subscriber, you may wonder why I'm still here, given that I announced I'd be stepping aside in 2020. Well, things change, and that year they changed more than most. The new editors who were going to take my place could no longer do so. We suspended publication for a few months, and I'm not sure Talking Writing would still be here if not for the support of art director John Vogel and other staffers who urged me to keep it going. I'm glad that I did. We're now emerging with a vibrant vision of how to mix visual art and music and words, all the things I believe can help remake this messy, tumultuous world. I am immensely proud of the people I work with, many of whom do it for no pay or an honorarium. I've donated my own editorial time gratis to Talking Writing from the start. It's easy to dismiss something like this as a passion project, except that Talking Writing has been around for 12 years at this point. However hard the past few years have been, I have to say, I'm amazed by our little engine that could, the hills we've climbed and continue to climb. Publishing a site like Talking Writing. It's certainly a labor of love for all who participate. I'm also committed to helping the next generation of magazine writers, editors, artists, and journalists find their footing in a transformed media world. It's a very different world than the one I came up in professionally, and there are fewer opportunities to learn on the job. But there are plenty of new opportunities to speak the truth, to insist on the truth of everyone left out of the usual narratives or the gamesmanship of social media influence. So, please donate what you can to Talking Writing. Go to the donate page on our website or one of the donation buttons in our newsletter and with this podcast. Please give what you can. Be generous, just as we give thanks to all of you for supporting us over the years. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And we end this episode with Rebecca Steinitz reading her essay, On Writing Another Novel.
4: The Rejected First Novel is an old story. Perhaps that explains why the version I tell includes every step toward almost. The beta reader love, the manuscript requests, the conversations with agents, the drama of the lying first agent, the support of the devoted second agent, the conversations with editors, and after all that, the rejected first novel. In other words, the same old story. After that story comes the inevitable sequel, which begins with the same old advice. Write another novel. But here's the thing. I'm 58. It took me eight years to write my first novel and five more not to get it published. Imagine how old I'll be when I finish another. Remember Frank McCourt, people say. And that woman in her 80s who published her first novel back in the 80s? Spend a moment Googling, and you'll find pages of listicles featuring later-in-life debut novelists. Bram Stoker published Dracula at age 50. Little House in the Big Woods appeared when Laura Ingalls Wilder was 65. You can do it, too. Besides my husband and children, novels are the great passion of my life. From the age of six, when I first achieved chapter book proficiency, to today, when a stack towers on my bedside table— I have never not been reading a novel, or many. As an English professor, I taught novels and wrote about them for academic journals. When I left academia, I kept writing about novels in a book column and reviews. I am known among friends and family for my novel recommendations and gifts. For decades, people asked me when I was going to write a novel. In turn, I wondered if I would ever write one. I used to tell myself, and others, that work and children and life were why I didn't write novels. But I wrote plenty of other things in those years. An academic book, essays and articles about education, parenting, politics, and culture, blog posts, Facebook posts, tweets. Secretly and shamefully, I knew the real reason I wasn't writing a novel was that I didn't have an idea for one. Not a story, not a scene, not even a seed. It seemed like I had everything I needed to write a novel, except a novelistic imagination. Then, a story I'd always known transformed itself into a novelette idea, and at age 42, inspired by NaNoWriMo, I wrote the beginning of what eventually became the first 50,000 words of a novel. It was loosely based on my grandparents' wedding night in post-World War One Berlin, when, according to family lore my grandfather told my much younger grandmother that he had a mistress and two children. I was finally, late in life, but hopefully not too late, on my way to writing a novel. And then I didn't write it. The plot was, and still is, great, but I didn't know anything about post-World War I Berlin. This might easily have been remedied by research, but I, I had work, children, life, and a strong preference for reading novels over researching early 20th century German history. I started to wonder if now that my imagination had emerged, I wasn't going to write a novel because I lacked perseverance. Then one day, as I was running through the neighborhood where I grew up, marveling at all the houses that now had skylights, life once again sparked a novel— This one was about a famous lawyer and his second wife who live in one of those skylit houses and die in a freak accident, leaving two sets of children from his two marriages to deal with their grief, each other, and a house with a skylight. This time there was no need for research. The novel took place in a time and space I knew like I know my own life, and this time I persevered only to end up with nothing but an unpublished novel to show for my efforts. It's one thing to put aside your first novel at age 22, or even your first three novels by 33. We've all read those stories about novels rejected by a dozen publishers that end up as record-breaking bestsellers. Say hello, Harry Potter. They aim to be as inspirational as the aforementioned listicles, and I'm sure they work for some people. But although the disappointment of a failed novel is acute at any age, hope for a future novel is harder to rouse when you're older. And it's particularly hard when it takes so long to arrive back where you started, as a writer who has never published a novel. Except, now I have written a novel. Not only that, but I'm overflowing with ideas for novels. Besides the Berlin Wedding Book, there's The Woman Butcher Romance, The Best Friends, Switching Husbands, Genetic Testing, Multi-Decade Saga. The one about two brothers who start a rock band that is on the verge of fame and fortune when one of them dies in mysterious circumstances. And, well, the last idea is not for sharing, because I'm actually writing it. If I've made it to 58 without publishing a novel, I presumably can make it the rest of my life. But now that I've written a novel... I can't imagine the rest of my life without writing another.
0: Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. Please feel free to donate through our website or by using the donate button on the rss.com page for this podcast. Visit talkingwriting.com to read our current issue and for much more about the creative life. Music from this episode can be found on the Eddie Sid's Bandcamp page. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at talkingwriting.com. So we get a start, it's never perfect. Just a pulled hair, a frond, and long wavering hair. I avoid my emotions like teaspoons once in a while. Receipts tied to Matt's feet. Chastity moves, whammy moves, top dollar with the pop collar. I put a on his throat, try to ascend On paper I thought heavens would be This ain't life that's underneath Roommate for years, two mates for beers Wild, pale, prevented, stuck And the sucrose on presidents' faces I fold over the page and break the bed I took a deep dive when your swan dive Drove like the camera dive. Teacup offered, teacup denied. If
2: I could find the happiness that I know is better than a quick connection with a passing stranger.